0: The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Field Notes Brand, makers of American memo books and more. Now featuring county fair editions, one for each state in the United States of America. Field Notes Brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. FieldNotesBrand.com. And by Smith Micro Software. Makers of Stuff It Deluxe, designed to move files simply and securely wherever customers want them to go. For Mac and PC. Online at StuffIt.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. The Toronto International Film Festival is one of the largest film festivals in North America. It also has a reputation as a bit of a populist film festival. Everything plays here, from the arty art films to big Hollywood movies. That's why last month our friends Noel Murray and Scott Tobias headed out to Toronto to check out some of the movies that are expected to premiere this winter here in the United States. I spoke to them from Toronto late in the festival. Gentlemen, welcome to The Sound of Young America.
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks, yes.
0: So tell me about what makes uh, Toronto different from, say, Cannes or uh, Sundance or South by Southwest or or some of these other film festivals that people might be familiar with.
1: Uh, Well, a couple of things. Uh, One is that it comes at the end of festival season or near near to the end anyway. Um, It's way after Sundance, which is in January, and Cannes is in May. Uh, you know, it's after Venice, just after Venice, and it's 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 sort of a smorgasbord of world cinema. I mean, you have a lot of you have some premieres, uh, particularly you know award-contending type of movies, uh, and, and other and obviously other premieres. There's over 300 movies here, but it's really just kind of a, a nice sampling of all the festivals that come before us. All, all the all the really good stuff from from Sundance and in Cannes and Venice ideally gets sort of filtered into this festival.
2: Yeah, it's called the festival of festivals. Oh,
1: yeah, that's right. It is called the Festival (laughs) of Festivals. That's right.
2: Uh, Um, It's also, I think, a little bit more of a populist uh, festival in that, unlike some other festivals where you really have to be a member of the press or a member of the industry to get in and see things, this is one where people can – film lovers from around the world can come here and get tickets and see just about anything they want to see.
1: Yeah, it's very democratic.
0: It also has a bit of a reputation uh, as a little bit more populist in terms of its programming, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you have the Midnight Madness
2: uh, uh, series, which has a lot of, you know, cult movies and and genre pictures that are well-liked. And there's, um, as Scott mentioned, this is kind of a kickoff to the Oscar season to a a large degree. So every year you get, you know, eight or nine uh, sort of middle-browy movies that... uh, um, or you know uh, have great performances, or, or or more likely to to end up on the on the year end uh, award lists. But it's,
1: it's it's almost kind of hard to pigeonhole too, because again there are so many movies here. There were three hundred movies, and then there's a, you know there there's a huge avant garde section. Um, you know there's movies of all stripes coming from from diff- from around the world. So so in that sense, I mean yes, it's populist, and the, uh, there there are galas and stars and red carpets and that sort of thing. But it's there, there's a lot of range there.
0: Let's talk about uh, some movies that you saw um, that th- there were very high expectations for going into the festival. Um, we might as well start with *The Illusionist*. Uh, folks might remember the uh, the animated film *The Triplets of Belleville*, which came out a, a few years ago and was uh, Oscar-nominated. Maybe it also won an Oscar. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, this movie now that you've uh, had a chance to take it in.
2: Um, it's based on an unproduced screenplay by by uh, Jacques Tati, uh, a French filmmaker who made these very kind of specific visual comedies. Um, this is a film that he never got to make in his lifetime, and so um, uh, the animator, who was a big Tati fan and actually had some Tati homages in Triple to Belleville, um, adapted this thing into another animated film. It's about a magician who is kind of towards the end of his career. He's, he's not as popular as he used to be. It's set in the early 60s. Rock and roll is sweeping the continent. And so he has one last tour of England and Scotland, and he meets somebody who um, who believes that he actually is magic. And so he tries to persuade her that magic actually exists. It's a very, very sweet movie, very lyrical, very sad. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of this film. I thought it was gorgeous. And I like the fact that it doesn't just uh, pay homage to Tati, but it's also pays homage to uh, Powell and Pressburger and Fellini and Max Ophels and, uh, and Jacques Demy and all these sort of filmmakers from that era who tried to do magical things with cinema. Scott's not quite as big. A I, fan I was though.
1: not that big. I, I, I did I did like it. And, uh, and his animation style, which is the sort of uh, hand-drawn, uh, very distinctive style. I and mean, if you've seen triplet, Triplets of Belleville, I guess you know what to expect. It's, it's very charming and warm and uh, and and you know and homemade and just it's really beautiful and, and i think this film is if anything more more beautiful than triplets of belleville but i do feel like um the whimsy uh, in this film weighs heavy um and uh it felt like an extremely long 80 minutes to, to me i think <laughs> I, it didn't uh didn't work quite as much for me as it did for, did for Noel, but uh but i really do look forward to seeing it again just to sort of get lost in uh in uh, show particular animated universe which is quite stunning
0: let's take a really hard left turn away from whimsy, Darren Aronofsky. I, I remember when I first saw uh, Pi his his first feature, and I saw him in, like a weird screening room um in boston my mom was my mom was uh, doing like a summer student thing there, and I was really um I, I was really overwhelmed by its depiction of migraine, which were, i have, I get migraine headaches, and I was like, "Wow, that was really something." Um, he, he has a new film coming out called Black Swan, uh, which is about ballet uh, it, Tell me about it and, and what were your impressions of having seen it uh, well it, it's it's quite it 's quite good
1: and uh, and if if I think you know what? You, how you feel about Aronofsky is going to determine quite a bit how you feel about this movie because uh, it's very much his. And you know, you mentioned you know the the migraines in in, in Pi. There is that, that physical visceral quality to his his films, and also this idea that of the um, of psychic uh, stress uh, showing on the body. Uh, which is a kind of a Cronenberg thing too. Um, this is a, this is a movie uh, with starring Natalie Portman as a ballet dancer who gets uh, the lead role in a new production of uh, Swan Lake. And uh, you know in Swan Lake she have to dance as the white swan and the black swan, but she's only she's very she's very Natalie Portman ish, so she can only really do the white swan well because she lacks the spontaneity and uh, and uh, passion to to do black swan well. And this is the perfect role. And our friend Sam Adams, who's also a critic and a contributor to AV Club, um, he had a, he's, he thinks that the movie is a comment on uh, Natalie Portman herself because because she is. You know she is playing a character whose whose strengths and flaws are very similar to a lot of the strengths and flaws that people attribute to to Natalie Portman, the actress. And and I just I feel like um, this movie uh, works those through brilliantly. It's just it's the ideal role for her.
0: There's this new Michael Winterbottom film called uh, The Trip. It has uh, one of my favorite dudes around, Steve Coogan. Um, tell me a little bit about it. What did you think?
2: Um, it's it's a very entertaining, very funny movie. I was a little disappointed in it because of the people involved. Um, you know, Steve Coogan is very funny. The movie is basically him and Rob Brydon, an actor who's been in a lot of other British television shows, most notably Gavin and Stacey. Um, and it's the two of them touring around the north of England, uh, eating food and just talking yeah. and doing impressions. Doing a lot of impressions. <laughs> and competing with each other. <laughs> we didn't realize this until after it was over, but apparently this is actually going to be a six-part TV series in the UK. And they turned it into a hour, hour and 40-minute.
1: More than that, it's an hour and 50.
2: Yeah, a uh, feature film. And it's quite choppy, quite frankly. And there are points where it seems to cut away too soon. There are things that seem very repetitive that might not seem repetitive if you saw them. Week to week on a TV show, so. Um, but that said, it's you know the relationship between these two guys. I mean, they're playing quote unquote themselves. Steve Coogan as a guy whose career is not going where is, as well as he wanted it to go, and Rob Reiner as a guy who's very happy with his kind of middle of the road career. So the two of them talk about that. They talk about being middle aged. They talk about you know various pop culture things, and they see who does the best Michael Caine impression, and they get on
1: each other's <laughs> nerves quite a bit too. The Michael Caine, there's a, just an unbelievably brilliant scene early on where they uh, they, they not only do a Michael Caine impressions, but they, they they do impressions that evolve that show how Michael Caine's voice has evolved over time, and it's it's <laughs> it's amazing.
0: It's funny to think. I mean, I, I think Coogan's career has in many ways traced his. Um, His development from an impressionist, which is what he was when he broke into the comedy scene in England, into this sort of uh, epic character, comedy character actor. Um, it's funny to think that now he's playing himself, he, he's playing himself doing impression.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, he's kind of gotten to a point where he's constantly playing himself in movies. It seems he's playing a guy who is not quite as happy with his career as he wanted to be. He's basically playing Alan Partridge as Steve Coogan, um, <laughs> which is, you know, a weird kind of through the, yeah, there through are the levels kind of, of, of meta thing. here that are hard <laughs> to
0: contemplate. What were some of the movies that you had high hopes for that didn't meet them? One
1: film I had really high expectations f- for that didn't meet them uh, is It's Kind of a Funny Story, which is a new film from Ryan Fleck and Anna Boden, uh, who are the directors of Half Nelson and Sugar, two dramas I, I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, and this is a change of pace for them. It's it's uh, it's a comedy with dramatic elements about a a, uh, a, a young, teenaged, uh, pretty privileged kid who uh, nonetheless has thoughts of suicide and, and, and gets checked into a psych ward. And the Psych Ward is filled with a lot of kind of wacky characters, uh, you know, the most prominent of whom is played by uh, Zach Galifianakis, who I love in the movie, Um, the one sort of big saving grace for me. But it's one of those things where it's trying to uh, to mix comedy and drama. It's trying to trying to have these these really broad uh, laughs in it, but then also take uh, mental illness. And and uh, you know psychological trauma uh, seriously, and it's very hard to pull that off. And and uh, I, I think the, the the pacing of the film is too slow. Uh, the the laughs really aren't there uh, much of the time, and uh, and the shift in tone just the shift in tone doesn't really work. Um, so it was a, uh, that was a kind of a tough one for me.
0: Well, I'm sad to hear that. Uh, there's some great uh, in addition to Zach Galifianakis, a favorite past sound of Young America guest, isn't Jim Gaffigan in that one as well? A very small
1: role very small role as as the kid's father.
2: Um for me I think it would be uh 127 hours, the new Danny Boyle film which uh, stars James Franco as a guy who is sort of an outdoor adventure type. It's basically a true story about a, about this guy. He's an outdoor adventury type who is out in the uh Utah desert and um is is jumping through cliffs and canyons and a large boulder falls on his arm and he is stuck with that boulder on his arm for 127 hours, which is about 5 days. Um, and it kind of goes through his, you know, his different ways he's trying to get free from this boulder, and his kind of reflecting on his life and, and what this moment means and what he needs to do about his life if he ever does get free. Um, and then, you know, ultimately it, it deals with his escape and, and, and how that, you know, um, what happens afterward. Um, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Danny Boyle. I didn't like Slumdog Millionaire very much. Um, I think his big problem as a filmmaker is that he's really into viscerally exciting things. So So he's constantly trying to make movies that distract the audience and kind of amuse the audience. But they don't always necessarily give the audience what they really need. And so for this story, I, mean, I, I did like it. And I did think that James Franco was terrific and it's got a terrific beginning and the ending is very exciting. But there are times in the middle where he's trying to, you know, keep you entertained with a guy with a rock on his arm. And maybe he didn't need to do that. Maybe he needed to actually make you feel what it's like to have a rock on your arm a little bit more. So that's one that I that, that other people really, really love. And I'm just kind of yeah, meh on
0: um what about movies that disappointed you that you may not have had high, as high expectations for? What about what about the junk Noel? What about what? What about the
2: pure
1: garbage? <laughs> you have some of that. You had that, you had the Will Ferrell uh movie.
2: Yeah, I did see a Will Ferrell movie called Everything Must Go, which is uh based on a Raymond Carver short story in which uh Ferrell plays a guy who gets laid off from his job, comes home and finds out that his wife has put all of his personal belongings on the on the yard. So he decides to live on the lawn um, and uh, sell his stuff, which is a great idea for a movie. But the problem is that this is total indie mush. It's got the the plunky guitar soundtrack. It's got the kind of, you know, uh, little dramedy beats that uh, are, are, you know, wry but not really all that funny. It's the kind of thing really that would have been better if it had been a Will Ferrell movie. You know, if it had been actually kind of riotous and bizarre and strange and not kind of earnest.
0: It's always tough when you're... I mean, I couldn't be a bigger Will Ferrell fan. I really think he's a brilliant genius, but... You know, I, I didn't really care for Stranger Than Fiction either. It, it's kind of hard to know what to do when, you're, um, uh, when your character's greatest qualities are, are about earnestness. Earnestness in the service of earnestness can be a little bit too much.
2: Yeah, I think people, people make the mistake sometimes. You know, comedians, when they're trying to go dramatic, they just maybe go too far. You know, and this is actually somewhat of a, you know, it's a dramedy. So he's, he is trying to be funny at times. But. Oh,
1: Stranger Than Fiction was that way as well. And I think you kind of want to root for uh, actors to, to sort of break out of, to do things outside of the mainstream and to make that work for them. Uh, the Stranger Than Fiction worked a little bit better for me, I think, than you, Jesse. But uh, but uh, this one sound, sounded pretty bad.
0: <laughs> Noel Murray and Scott Tobias of the AV Club. They're online at avclub.com. We spoke while they were visiting the Toronto International Film Festival last month. Our special thanks to Chris Berubi of CIUT in Toronto who helped us record that interview. And by the way, we had one day of the film festival left when we recorded this interview. And uh, two days after we recorded it, I got an email from Scott Tobias. He said, hey, Jesse, just wanted to let you know that our line about the middling quality of this year's Toronto International Film Festival has changed a bit since we recorded the show. Specifically, I had one of the best movie-going days of my life today. Um, So Scott would like to strongly recommend the terrific... In his words, Errol Morris documentary, Tabloid, the Takashi Miike samurai movie, 13 Assassins, and um, a movie called Meek's Cutoff by Kelly Reichardt, which he described as maybe the best movie I've seen in the 17 years I've been reviewing movies. I felt like that was a worthy coda to our interview. So check out Tabloid and 13 Assassins and Meek's Cutoff when they hit theaters in the United States. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.